Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're going to learn about the work of the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, an independent expert appointed by the UN Human Rights Council. The mandate holder identifies existing and emerging obstacles to the enjoyment of the right to freedom of religion or belief and presents recommendations to the Human Rights Council on ways to overcome these obstacles. The Special Rapporteur uses multiple means to carry out his duties, including First of all, by transmitting communications to uh, states on cases that represent infringements of or impediments to the exercise of the right to freedom of religion and belief, and also by undertaking fact-finding country visits and then preparing and presenting a report from these visits, and also then by submitting and presenting annual reports to the Human Rights Council and General Assembly on the activities and trends of issues and methods of work. In recent years, uh, the current mandate holder has produced several uh, thematic reports on a range of issues, including on Islamophobia and anti-Semitism globally, the intersection of religious freedom with gender equality and freedom of expression and discrimination and violence against individuals in the name of religion, as well as the nexus between security and freedom of religion or belief. We're fortunate today to have with us the current mandate holder, Dr. Ahmed Shahid, to discuss his work with us. Dr. Shahid is a senior lecturer at the University of Essex School of Law in the United Kingdom, and he previously served as the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the Maldives between 2005 and 2010. Welcome to you, Dr. Shahid. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start by asking you if you could tell our audience a little bit more about the scope and confines of your mandate as UN Special Rapporteur and your ability uh, to navigate the UN system as an independent expert, especially uh, the ability to express your views as openly and frankly uh, through your work and travels and reporting. Well, as you just said uh, in the intro, as UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of General Belief, my role is to identify existing and emerging obstacles to the enjoyment of the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and regional belief around the world, monitor violations of the rights guaranteed by standards, such as the 1981 UN Declaration on the Elimination of All Forms of Intolerance and of Discrimination Based on General Belief, advocate on behalf of individuals who face violations of, of their rights under these, under these guarantees, and of course, promote ways to uh, protect uh, the enjoyment of these rights. To carry out this work, as with all special reporters, I undertake country visits with the consent of the country concerned, of course, to assess country situations and make recommendations to the government, to society, and, and of course, faith-based groups as well. In addition, we convene conferences, consultations, workshops, develop and present reports to the UN twice a year, and of course, try to uh, advance respect for the right, and of course, you know, clarify the normative framework, and in fact, build on the normative framework. These reports identify trends, concerns, opportunities, and propose frameworks that can support the promotion of this right for everybody. Now, in all this work, of course, I apply a gender perspective in collecting the data, in engagement uh, with stakeholders, 
in making representations and recommendations uh, for various actors. I am an independent expert, so my views are independent of the UN bureaucracy and not to subject negotiation with states or to their veto or even with other special rapporteurs. But we do comply with the code of conduct, which in my, in my view, helps uphold professional standards and give confidence about our methods of work. This code of conduct also prioritizes seeking cooperation of states, but of course does not undermine the ability to act out and speak out independently. But state behavior can impose certain disadvantages and challenges, where states adopt a strategy of punishing society actors who cooperate with us. And of course, their cooperation is crucial to the work of all special rapporteurs. Now, you've been in uh, your position since 2016. And I wanted to ask you, from your vantage point, what would you consider some of the most serious challenges uh, facing religious freedom around the world today, including both some country-specific concerns that you've uh, monitored and evaluated, as well as troubling trends that you've uh, been watching uh, over the past the five years or so? Well, I'm afraid I have a long list of serious concerns. But the <laughs> top ones are those that result in mass atrocities, but they're instigated by states or by terrorist groups. There are many recent and ongoing examples of mass atrocities resulting from violence in the name of religion or belief, which have been carried out by terrorist groups, as well as those done by actors, state actors, and those with complicity of state actors. Linked to this, this concern is the impunity for such, such, uh, such crimes, which further encourages more violence. The rule of law deficits that encourage these trends highlight some drivers of such impunity. And this relates to states' imposition of religious norms or state support for some religious, religious norms over others. And these frequently exhibit as anti-blasphemy laws or anti-conversion laws or laws of similar type that, that, that restrict the scope for expression of uh, one's faith or belief. Now, many top concerns are interlinked and the coercive implementation of religious norms is at the heart of these trends. And when this occurs, minorities suffer egregious rights violations and the insufficient attention, and of course, the insufficient attention given to intersectional aspects of such violations is also a serious concern. And that, for example, the targeting of school children, especially girls, as in Afghanistan or in Nigeria, uh, is shocking. And other, uh, as other violations of other gender equality rights, I could go on, but I do want to mention two other global challenges. The rise of religious nationalism or religion-based identity populism that has transformed or aligned religious intolerance with racism and xenophobia. And this affects both democracies and non-democracies. And the rise of digital, digital and, and the rise of digital authoritarianism, reinforced by authoritarian geopolitical trends and boosted further by the pandemic, which has further eroded the freedom of thought, conscience, and religion of or belief. In terms of countries of concern, um, my list of kinds of concern track very closely with those that are listed by yourself as countries of particular concern. And of course, you can count um, the countries I have been most, foc most focused on through the letters of complaint I sent to these governments, and the, the times they are called out in my reports. And the top ones would, would be China, Iran, Pakistan, North Korea, Vietnam, Egypt, Nigeria, and of course, increasingly, India, Sri Lanka, to name some of the top um, countries that I've been uh, in engaged on. Empirical research by various scholars also note the rising restrictions in democracies that are imposing more and more limitations on religious minorities, along with the rising trends 
in societal violence targeting these minorities. The recent upsurge we've seen in anti-Semitic hatred and violence, as well as the ongoing institutional dimensions of Islamophobia give rise for serious concern, precisely because they are also happening in democracies. Well, yeah, that sounds, that definitely tracks with some of the work that USURF has been doing in highlighting these issues, but very insightful. You know, you've mentioned a few times in your responses uh, the gender-based perspective. I wanted to ask you further about one of your reports that you issued last year uh, titled Gender-Based Violence and Discrimination in the Name of Religion or Belief. You know, one of the findings that jumped out is that in several countries, religious precepts provide the basis for laws and state-sanctioned practices that constitute violations of the right to non-discrimination of women, girls, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, you know, LGBT plus persons. You concluded in that report that women and LGBT plus individuals experience discrimination and violence inflicted in the name of religion by both state and non-state actors. And you emphasize that the right to freedom of religion protects individuals and not religions. I think this is a key point that keeps coming up over and over again. Given that uh, it's actually Pride Month here in the United States here in June, could you elaborate a little bit on your findings from this report, particularly how religion is manipulated by state and non-state actors in this context? The report highlights the ways in which governments and non-state actors, including religion-based actors, use or weaponize religious teachings to violate a range of gender equality rights, especially those of women, girls, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender persons. I document a range of ways through which state enforcement of patriarchal religious norms, such as laws and policies that permit or promote early and forced marriage, marital rape, polygyny, gender hierarchies in family life, politics, society, and culture, and in the law, as, as serious violations of freedom of belief, and other human rights, as of course do laws that criminalize abortion in all cases, or penalize sexual relations amongst consulting adults outside of marriage, or practices that enforce, promote, or permit conversion therapies. I ground my arguments on the universality and inalienability of human rights, and on the unestablished an, an law that every human being, regardless of sex, gender identity, or sexual orientation, has an equal right to all human rights as everyone else. And further, that religious freedom does not protect religious be beliefs as such. And not every action motivated by religious belief is protected on international law. A key message in my report is that all human beings have an equal entitlement to all human rights and are only entitled to the peaceful exercise of these rights. Another key aspect of the report is to examine the extent of state obligation to protect persons against discrimination which is in all cases, unless they are based on objective and reasonable criteria. Violating the equal dignity of individuals is never reasonable, and the state cannot be complicit in such abuses. And of course, while state should not violate the internal autonomy of religious organizations, it must at all times exercise due diligence to protect those in vulnerable situations. And this must include creating environments where people are empowered to make informed and autonomous choices and decisions by promoting the agency of every person. The promotion of the agency of every person is a foundational goal of human rights framework. I also make the important point that religious freedom as a human right does not privilege religious leaders over their followers in that a bishop or an imam, a monk, philosopher, rabbi or teacher has no more rights 
than their followers or disciples. And that individuals can self-define their belief identity. And there are many religious actors and leaders from within the LGBT plus communities. Thank you for uh, summarizing. You really hit on a lot of points, I think, that have been the focus of debate and different perspectives, but they're very helpful. Uh, and we'll uh, show, uh, I'll give the website of where things can be found, this report and other things. But what I wanted to ask you about one of the developments that I've noticed in recent years coming from the UN mandate holders are the, are the number of joint statements that have been issued by the various experts on country or thematic issues within the US system condemning uh, human rights abuses by states. And obviously, there's a, a for freedom of religion or belief element that, you know, is, has been there as well. I've noticed you've been on a number of different joint statements. Can you tell me if you've found uh, over the past few years, if this approach with multiple uh, experts speaking out uh, has been more effective in, in engendering a greater response from the particular state uh, where violations have been taking place? This is a very good question. In my time on the Iran mandate, I found joint statements very powerful, largely because it undercut Iran's favorite excuse for non-engagement with the, with the Iran mandate, which was to say that Iran didn't recognize country-specific mandates. So joint letters overcame that narrative. When thematic mandates come together, there are benefits and sometimes costs. The benefits are largely to assert the level of concern, the level of concern and the extent of concern or specific issue or country situation. An example would have been the, 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 a large number of reporters coming together, talk about situation in, in China uh, following the change of status in Hong Kong recently. But when joint press releases compress, say in about 400 words, the concerns and views of several mandate holders, the content of the message can get diluted. And that is a drawback. But in general, there are states exception to specific mandates or have reservation specific parts of the human rights framework, then casting a wide net would leave less wiggle room for state, state in question. So I do think in, in, in overall that the more joint statements, joint appeals are made, the, the more likely is that the state will respond to those to those queries. Well, that's good to know. I know in the past, I mean, as you write your uh, com communications to states that uh, for many years, going back even before you served in this capacity, but several uh, terms that, you know, mm -hmm. many states wouldn't even respond. But when you get these public statements, it sounds like it's, you know, having a greater impact, at least awareness on one level. But it's, that's good to know that there is some kind of uh, a greater response. Well, let me ask you now, you mentioned you had the Iran mandate before your uh, Forb uh, time in 2016. Uh, so you've had obviously a, a good number of years of experience in this capacity. Well, with the time left on your term looking forward, what would you consider your highest priorities and what would you like to accomplish if you could if you could script that out? And and I know now that we're emerging out of the pandemic in some parts of the world, although slower in others. Do you have any plans to undertake any country visits or requests out there or to produce other thematic reports uh, coming out in the year ahead? Right. I've got uh, time for three more thematic reports uh, in my tenure as mandate holder. So right now I'm working on the freedom of thought, uh, which has not been examined in any detail by any mandate or in fact by international lawyers. So it really is uh, you know, an issue of great scope, but also because we're seeing increasing trends in violations. Of course, we, we know the most crude forms of it. We see in, in the case of the Uyghurs in China, 
the crude forms of say what, what the core education, but also accompanied by more more modern means of using technology to kind of you know discipline people's thoughts. So the repressiveness um, of states through technology is increasing, and I think this is an opportunity for me to really engage in the subject, looking at various dimensions. You know the issue, the problem of uh, you know dissent, uh, intellectual freedom, and how that links with freedom of thought and how it should be protected. And to what extent, to how far does those protections ex extend? For example, is my diary, uh, you know, does it enjoy full protection? It should, of course. Or how about my internet search, you know, search history? But there are questions to be asked about how far we ought to extend this, these protections. And of course, the ways of ways they are violated, and the, the issues of disinformation, of manipulation, all of these need to need to be looked into. So, so I'm I'm very um, excited about the consultants I'm doing right now. I've got a call out which is which is due tomorrow. And I'm still looking for more information for the next few weeks before I would draft my report uh, in July. Now, after that, I'm undertaking a series of consultations uh, to look at, uh, like I mentioned, the more serious case of violations, you know, where the normative framework is clear, but state action is lacking, is lagging or is quite the opposite. So I'm looking at the most egregious violations faced by minorities, and many of them actually are in the Middle East. So I'll be looking at the Middle East situation, but also beyond uh, beyond that, look at how how the current framework for minority rights protection can be better applied to protect rights of everyone. That's my report, hopefully for the uh, March session uh, next year. And my very final report is, is again going to take up a subject we've never discussed before, which is in terms of my, my mandate, which is the uh, uh, religious freedom rights of indigenous peoples. Again, you know, a very challenging area, but certainly, of course, an important one given the way in which in the pandemic, for example, we've seen how their rights have been affected. But even before that time, how our development, how business, how corporate activities, or even, even our fields understand the different ways in which spiritual religions are, are expressed and how they are so protected is, is to be taken up. So these are my three thematic reports. In terms of country visits, I've been I've been very eager to go to Sudan since the since the revolution. They have been asking me to come there. And as soon as travel permits, I would be there, along with Tajikistan. Again, because they, they, they're very eager to have me there, and there is a, you know, there is a momentum in the region following on from Uzbekistan's recent changes, although modest, but nevertheless creating an interest in the region to take some steps forward. So these are my, if you like, immediate country visits. That leaves two more visits for next year, which I haven't yet decided, but I hope to look at the most, again, the most serious cases of violations where I can go and engage with states. Well, very ambitious uh, and, and very exciting to see that you're you're pushing the envelope a bit with some of these other uh, issues that have not been taken up by previous mandate holders. And of course, hopefully you can travel to some of these countries. We had a chance to get to Sudan uh, just before the pandemic and have, have documented uh, our findings and for the first time, no longer recommended Sudan either for the country of particular concern or special watch list. So would look forward to seeing uh, what you might find there. But let me uh, go ahead and thank uh, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, UN uh, official Dr. Ahmed Shahid, uh, a professor at the Essex Law School. Unfortunately, we'll have to leave it right here. Uh, really uh, appreciate your views and looking ahead for what you have ahead of you. You can learn more about his work uh, uh, with at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights website at www.ohchr.org. Under the Issues section and on freedom of religion and belief, you can see a number of his reports are 
listed there and reports on past country visits and other things. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.